Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. Oh, good God. You know what? We're live. I, I actually felt like we were, uh, like I was listening to a podcast. This is, this is Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm Troy Harkin. And yeah, that is Dave, David Klink. I can confirm yeah. that. Yeah, I'm David Klink, and I can confirm so David, that he is Troy Harkin. I have a question for you. Now that we're into episode six, episode six, yeah. uh, I'm feeling comfortable. I'm feeling at home. And now I was thinking, I'm sort of conceptualizing that we are uh, not at home during uh, a pandemic, tail end of a pandemic, hopefully, but we are actually like rocket ship seven. We are, we're out in space somewhere sending back this wonderful content. And I thought if we were out in space, perhaps, you know, we deserve a robot to be with us, or as some of our American friends say, a robot. And um, what do you think? Do you think we, we should have a robot like, like promo was on rocket ship seven? Yeah. And I wonder if there was a robot on prisoners of gravity. Um. I want a plastic pal who's fun to be with. That's the kind of robot I want. Oh, I like that idea. What would you call him? Marvin. <laughs> oh, copyright. You better watch that. He better be. Yeah, I better he, not. He better be well adjusted if you do that, if you call him Marvin. Okay. Larry um, then. Okay. I like that. And now I know robots and androids are not the same thing, but uh, today we will be talking about some androids. And um, we've got a great guest with us, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, actually, by the way, Larry prefers to be called Lawrence by his friends. But um, this is our sixth episode. We are looking at Blade Runner, the 1982 film. And we have a special guest, Blade Runner fan Charlene Challenger. Hey, David, I've got a spoiler alert here. I want people to know that there's going to be spoilers. All right. So just get used to it. There's, there's things that will rock your world if you're not prepared for it. So there you go. Spoiler alert. Thank you, Troy, for that spoiler alert. We are recording this session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, I've known Charlene for many years. Let's introduce our special guest. Charlene Challenger is the author of two young adult fantasy novels, The Voices in Between, for, for which she was nominated for the 2015 Aurora Award for Best Young Adult Novel and long-listed for the 2015 Sunburst Award Young Adult Novel category, and its sequel, The Myth and Distance. Work is also featured in Stone Skin Press's Gods, Memes, and Monsters. She is represented by Kelvin Kong of K2 Literary. Welcome, Charlene. Thank you. Thank hey, you, Charlene. Troy, thank you for having me. No worries. And before we get into Blade Runner, Troy and I would like to know about your early genre loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our guests. We want to know how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. To Will Ferret's Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think William C. Faulkner said it best when he said, how often have I lain beneath rain on a strange roof, thinking of home? When we talk about genre, we are not talking about mysteries or westerns. We are looking at speculative things, things that could ha not happen in real life. Charlene, what was your first speculative genre memory? I think um, fairy tales, getting fairy tale books out of the library when I was very young 
um, being read fairy tales by uh, teachers. Um, those are sort of my earliest memories of genre. Um, what was the first speculative genre thing that you actually fell in love with and why? I would say um, that would be Star Trek Next Generation. And um, the reason is I, um, we, would, we would always watch it on a Saturday after coming home from church. And if there's ever something that, you know, can mitigate the, the effects of too much church on your mind, it's a great Star Trek Next Generation episode. I always, uh, I always found that to be entirely more believable than the uh, religious ceremony I'd just been a privy to. <laughs> Um, thanks, Charlene. Um, what we would like to do is get into your all-time genre phase. Um, here are some rapid-fire questions about your favorite genre things. Uh, we are just looking for titles, but if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. Charlene, what is your favorite genre movie? My Neighbor Totoro. How about your favorite genre TV show? Futurama. Can you tell us what your favorite individual uh, TV episode is, uh, genre TV episode? So there's an episode of Community where everyone is sitting around a table playing Dungeons and Dragons. And they are describing um, a campaign that the adventurers are on. And even though you're not watching anything sort of particularly genre it's it is people sitting around a table very much like you would um experience if you were playing D at home with a bunch of people um but it it's got some of the best um tension and humor and dramatic moments um in any television episode i've ever seen and i i, I was really impressed with it because it is literally just people sitting at, at large tables um playing this game and um, having, you know, um, arguments about what's going on and, you know, trying to make decisions about what to do next. Um, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Parenthetical editorial. I loved Dan Harmon and community. How about your favorite uh, genre novel? I think... Um, that would probably be uh, Never Let Me Go, Kazuo Ishiguro, um, which is a very um, beautiful specul speculative novel about um, people who are cloned for their organs um, and then donate organs as much as they can until they finally complete, um, which means obviously to pass away and, and the, the discussion of their humanity um, throughout the novel. Let's focus in on your favorite genre shorter work. That's going to be tougher. I do not know the title of this story. I have never forgotten it except the title. And it's about children who are on Venus and it constantly rains. It's raining, 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 raining. Um, every seven years they get one hour of sunlight. And these children... Um, have have taken a set against one of their classmates and um because she's so homesick for earth she misses earth she misses the sun she misses playing they're very young they take a set against her they 
lock her in a closet. And then the hour of sunlight comes and they all go out and play and they've left her in the closet and she misses the hour of sunlight. And I cannot remember the title of the story to save my life. If anyone wants to email <laughs> David or Troy, if they, if they're listening and they know the title of this story, um, please do um, because then they can pass it on to me. Um, I always thought it was so um, tragic and I, I, I really, I really empathized with that little kid. And uh, I, I, I would love to look it up and read it again, but I do not remember what it's called. Um, it, it appears that David has found the title of the story, All Summer in a Day. Uh, yes. Of course, Ray Bradbury. Yes. Of course. I should have known. Charlene, can you give me your favorite genre author? That would be Caitlin Sweet. She's a wonderful sci-fi fantasy author, um, Canadian. Um, I've had the pleasure of uh, watching her read and listening to her and having conversations with her. I think she, no one can turn a phrase like her. I think she's brilliant. Let's talk uh, favorite genre concepts or themes. Do you have one? Um, feeling like, um, feeling like an outsider sometimes has always, um, led me to, um, seek out themes of alienation, um, what makes us human, who gets the right to, um, to speak versus who doesn't, um, themes of, um, Humanity, uh, discrimination, um, those, those, I guess it's, it's quite a few, but um, those, those tend to ring, um, ring most resonant with me. Um, also, anything that has sort of an, um, an element or harkens to puppetry, mm-hmm. I tend, I tend to really jive with puppet imagery, marionette imagery people being controlled by others, um, that sort of, uh, um, that resonates with me as well. Do you have a favorite genre theater production or musical? I do. Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. I have that on vinyl. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I don't know if anyone's ever heard that, but uh, it, I think it's one of the best. Uh, I don't think it's ever been... I think it's 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 been performed in concert. It's sort of a it, it can be a concert um, piece. Um, I, I I just dig the seventies groove to all that music. I think it's great. Okay, let's have your favorite comic book series or graphic novel that's genre related. I'd have to say Berserk. It's a manga. Unfortunately, um, very recently, the the creator of um, Berserk um, passed away. Um, so I'm not sure where the series is going to go. Um, but it's, um, I believe, 40. I haven't read all of them yet, but uh, 40 uh, beautifully illustrated um, manga graphic novels. Um, very fantasy, lots of demons, lots of you know, head crushing sword play kind of thing. It's like if heavy metal was a manga that it, it's berserk. Nice. I'll have to look into that one. And your favorite genre poem. A sea monster tells his story. 
by David Klink. And I, and I know, I know um, I'm on David's podcast, but it, it truly is a, a beautiful poem. I absolutely adore it. Yeah. And thanks for that. And actually that poem will like, I'm getting married to Alexa. Um, she's the one that I dedicated the poem to. I wrote it back in 2011. So 10 years later, we're getting married. So that will be very nice. And that poem will be part of the ceremony. Um, uh, it doesn't end well for the sea monster, but then of course, Roy Batty doesn't think, well, let's forget the spoilers for a moment. On to Blade Runner. Troy Harkin will give some background, set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. Thanks, David. Philip K. Dick's science fiction novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, was published in 1968 by Doubleday Books. The story was set in San Francisco of 1992 in the aftermath and fallout of World War Terminus that has left the still habitable regions of the Earth crippled by radiation poison and an omnipresent dust that blocks out the sun. Most of the animals of the Earth have died and have been replaced by ersatz genetically designed versions. The story follows bounty hunter Rick Deckard, who is assigned the responsibility of retiring a group of Nexus androids, or Andes, who have committed off-world murders. Through the book, we also follow J.R. Isidore, who meets and befriends the renegade androids. The novel was nominated for a Nebula Award in 1969, but lost out to Alexei Panshin's The Rite of Passage. Screenwriter Hampton Fancher began work on an adaptation of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep in the mid-1970s. It was thought the book's title was too long for a film, so the working title was originally changed to Dangerous Days. So where did the phrase Blade Runner come from? Director Ridley Scott said, I finally said to Hampton, you know, we can't keep calling Deckard a goddamn detective. And he said, why not? I replied, because we're telling a story in 2019, for Christ's sake. The word detective will probably still be around then. But this job that Deckard does, killing androids, that requires something new. We've got to come up with a bloody name for his profession. The history behind choosing that name is detailed in the book Future Noir, The Making of Blade Runner by Paul M. Salmon. Hampton Fancher discovered a book by William S. Burroughs. It was titled Blade Runner, A Movie. After bringing these words back to Scott, the director responded favorably, reasoning that Blade Runner unit was a catchy term to describe the police assassins outlined in Fancher's script. Ridley and I also thought that Blade Runner would make a hell of a new title for a screenplay. So the rights to the title Blade Runner were secured, but Ridley Scott felt the script was lacking and David Peoples took over writing the screenplay. Peoples would later go on to write Lady Hawk, Unforgiven, and Twelve Monkeys. Casting the film was a challenge, especially the lead role of Deckard. According to production documents, several actors were considered for the role, including Dustin Hoffman, Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Al Pacino, and Burt Reynolds. Eventually, Harrison Ford, who had just come off of playing Indiana Jones for the first time, signed on to become the Blade Runner. Production pushed on. Often the film's leading man and its director were at loggerheads with one another. 
The film began to fall behind schedule, and at one point, Ridley Scott was fired before being rehired once the Directors Guild of America intervened on his behalf. One very fortuitous bit of inspiration occurred one night while filming. Perhaps the film's most famous lines were written by neither David Peoples or Hampton Fancher. While Rutger Hauer was preparing the death scene of his character, Roy Batty, inspiration struck him and he asked his director if he could amend his dialogue to include the lines, all these moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. When the film tested poorly, the studio panicked and insisted that a voiceover be written to clear up any confusion the audience might have. Both the film's director and star hated the idea, but the studio insisted. Harrison Ford has said he was contractually obliged to do the work, so he decided he would give the Lions an inferior delivery that would force the producers to scrap the idea of the voiceover. They did not. Here is the text of the film's opening screen crawl. Early in the 20th century, the Terrell Corporation advanced robot evolution into the nexus phase, a being virtually identical to a human, known as replicant. The Nexus 6 replicants were superior in strength and agility and at least equal in intelligence to the genetic engineers who created them. Replicants were used off-world as slave labor in the hazardous exploration and colonization of other planets. After a bloody mutiny by a Nexus 6 combat team in an off-world colony, replicants were declared illegal on Earth under penalty of death. Special police squads, Blade Runner units, had orders to shoot to kill upon detection any trespassing replicant. This was not called execution. It was called retirement. And from the back of my VHS copy of Blade Runner, Rick Deckard, Harrison Ford, prowls the steel and microchip jungle of 21st century Los Angeles. He is a Blade Runner stalking genetically made criminal replicants. His assignment? Kill them. Their crime? wanting to be human. Blade Runner was released in 1,290 theaters on June 25, 1982. The film grossed $6.1 million during its first weekend in theaters. It was released close to other major science fiction and fantasy releases such as The Thing, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, and E.T. Although Blade Runner initially underperformed in North American theaters, and polarized critics, it has become an acclaimed cult film, regarded as one of the all-time best science fiction films. Hailed for its production design depicting a decaying future, Blade Runner is a leading example of neo-noir cinema. The film's soundtrack, composed by Vangelis, was nominated in 1982 for a BAFTA and a Golden Globe for Best Original Score. Today, the film is recognized as a hugely influential classic. The American Film Institute ranked Blade Runner as the sixth best science fiction film of all time. Home again, home again, jiggity jig. Back to you, David. Let me unmute myself. Um, thanks a lot, Troy, for providing that um, background on Blade Runner. So, Charlene, please tell us how you were first introduced to Blade Runner. So, my first memory of the movie was um, I was dating this moron and he was bragging about his laser disc collection so he's one of those and this was the time when laser discs 
were, were certainly on their way out. And he held up a copy of Blade Runner on Laserdisc and told me the story of um, Harrison Ford doing the voiceover. And he was convinced that it was this, as he explained it to me, it was this big, you know, F you to um, uh, the producers that wanted this uh, voiceover, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, purposely gives a bad performance. Um, and then he went on to say um, how much better he found the movie with the voiceover. And that story sort of stuck in my head until I actually heard a clip of, um, of the movie with the voiceover. And I thought, thank God I dodged a bullet with that guy because anyone who's wrong about the voiceover in Blade Runner is probably wrong about everything else. Good. That's a good impulse there, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what was it about Blade Runner that made it one of your favorites? I think um, it's probably one of the most visually arresting movies I've ever seen. Um, the attention to detail, while I know it drove a lot of people crazy <laughs> working on the movie, I really appreciate it as a viewer. I think um, it was one of the first movies where the art direction really made the world feel lived in. Um, um, it... it uh, it reminded me so much of um, places I'd been um, where, I, you know, when I, I used to live in uh, Toronto and places I, I've been in Toronto, particularly the Chinatowns. There's a couple of Chinatowns in, in Toronto and the, the, just the beautiful neon lights. Um, I've always found neon to be very welcoming and, and very, um, you know, it's sort of something that you can, you can really appreciate, particularly late at night. And uh, I think that's when I felt, you know, my most free. I'm not at work. I'm not at home. I'm out with the neon lights. So that was the first thing that um, that jumped out. Um, and then all of this, you know, of course, the uh, the elements of humanity, um, questioning humanity, what what makes a person a person. I I, I do want to add here um, the performances in the movie are quite extraordinary. I, uh, one of the things that I didn't mention earlier that, that I identify most with is are these little acting quirks that the, um, the actors who are playing the replicants um, engage in these, these sort of uncanny looks to each other um, sort of um, jarring body language, jarring movement, um, some of the ways they say their lines um, is it has that element of uncanniness, but everything that they're saying and doing um, is sort of a heightened humanity, heightened reality, and really, really drives home this idea that replicants are um, the way you can tell a replicant is they have um, a sort of unnaturalness to them. They, they, they're when you, when you give them the Voight comp test, they have um, their reactions are not quite human. Um, of course, I, I, I find them to be, it's not that they're not quite human. It's that they're extraordinarily human. They're on, un, they're unabashedly human. And um 
I find those little visual cues and those little audio cues um, in those performances um, incredible, really engaging to watch. Yeah, and one of the things that that I wondered this week after doing a number of rewatches, I think I got into it two and a half times, was, um, you know, I, I was picking up on some of those kind of glitches, and I, I was then curious, are these things that maybe were in the Nexus 6 model throughout their lifespan, or we only see them in their final days? So I wondered, is, is this them winding down, breaking down, almost malfunctioning? We certainly see that with Roy, Roy Batty, you know, as he's struggling to stay alive, as he's fighting against death, and, and he has these weird little moments that, that, you know, these things he says and does. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, that's so true, Charlene. Thanks. So speaking of replicants, Charlene, we're not entirely sure that, that you're not one. So would oh. you mind if we actually administered the void comp test? Not at all. Please go ahead. All right, then let's just, we'll just lower the lights here for a second because it can't be too bright. <laughs> uh, David, would you like to uh, begin the testing? Absolutely. We'll just alternate these questions. Charlene, it's your birthday. Someone gives you a calfskin wallet. I wonder why they haven't also included 20 bucks. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, plus the killing jar. I immediately put on an Iron Maiden album. You're watching television. Suddenly you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. I scream, run, and set my house on fire. You're in a desert, walking along in the sand, when all of a sudden you look down and you see a tortoise, which is like a turtle. It's crawling towards you. You reach down, you flip the tortoise over on its back. The tortoise lays on its back, its belly baking in the hot sun, beating its legs, trying to turn itself over, but it can't, not without your help. But you're not helping. Why is that? I always heard that tortoise soup is better when the tortoise gets a tan prior to cooking. Describe in single words only the good things that come into your mind about your mother. Soft, away from me, doesn't know how to use a cell phone, so can't bother me. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page nude photo of a girl. You show it to your husband. He likes it so much he hangs it on your bedroom wall. I borrow it and go into the bathroom. You become pregnant by a man who runs off with your best friend and you decide to get an abortion. At the last moment, I change my mind and I name the child Ryan Gosling. Or do I? You're watching a stage play. A banquet is in progress. The guests are enjoying an appetizer of raw oysters. The entree consists of boiled dog. I take out a clothespin and plug my nose. <laughs> um, thank you, Charlene, for those questions. But we've added two additional questions from the Voigtkamp test. Um, I'm cleaning up the language on one of them. Um, I will ask you the first question. Troy will ask you the second. My question is, 
you are a terminator and a cleaning man at the flop house says, hey, buddy, you got a dead cat in there or what? Which of your possible responses do you choose? One, yes, no, two, or what? Three, go away, four, please come back later, five, frack you, asshole, and six, frack you. I think I'd say, or what? Finally, you're deep in the woods of northern Ontario. A woodchuck is chucking wood on inventory day, but his accountant's car has broken down. On top of this, the woodchuck is hung over and feeling a deep sense of malaise. How much wood can a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? Not as much wood as weed that I can smoke. <laughs> well, I, I think Con- I think she congratulations. Oh yes, you are not a replicant, but you are either a human or a terminator. I'm not sure which. Um, <laughs> one thing I was, one thing Charlene had impressed me so much years ago because I knew you were such a fan of of Blade Runner years ago. You were able to just from memory recite Roy Batty's final soliloquy, and that was just from just from memory. You you had memorized it, and if it's if it's okay, can you uh, please um, recite it for us? I'd love to. I I I hope uh, Rutger Howard. I do. I do. <laughs> I do this justice to him. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I've watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Tenhauser Gate. All these moments will be lost in time, like tears in the rain. Time to die. That was Thank incredible. You. That was excellent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, and again, a few more things. I don't know if. I, I, just ahead, wanted, <laughs> I just I just wanted to point out to uh, all our our audience, our toffees, as we call them, Charlene's for two old fuck ees, but you know. Um, and oh, I, I I know it's the internet, and I and I should uh, correct myself there, but our our fans are actually toffees for two old farts. There we go. <laughs> anyway, um, that was done. Uh, off script that was uh, a total recital um, done from memory so thank you thank you Charlene my pleasure uh, one of these things um, you may have answered earlier but we've got just a few questions um, that we're just just adding and one of them is just how much is the setting a character in the movie because I was wondering if they were shooting this in Vancouver or somewhere where it rains all the time because first of all it's raining all the time secondly every room every indoor room scene is smoke filled just about and they've got all of these displays so I was just wondering if you want to just get a bit more into this idea of the setting as a character I think um there's the obvious the street scenes um 
and, you know, the signage and, you know, people um, just out, you know, in their daily lives. I think it's no more, um, nowhere more apparent than in Deckard's apartment. If you look at Deckard's apartment, there's, there's so much all over the place. Um, photos, he's got a piano, he's got, you know, the, the kitchen is very cramped. He's got this sort of um, pattern detailing on the walls and, you know, it's smoky, it's very high up and it's, um, it, it, it truly speaks to this, this, um, this person's inner character, all of the stuff that, um, that he keeps around him. You would think someone who, um, um, whose job it is to, uh, retire, um, replicants would, wouldn't be so sentimental as it were in their aesthetic. They wouldn't have so much stuff around them. Um, but it, it almost seems like, you know, he's, he's trying to remind himself of, um, of who he is now, whether, whether he is who he is or whether he isn't, <laughs> I think we'll get back. We'll get into that later. Um, is, is still for debate, but but you know, if you take Deckard out of the apartment and you and you simply view his apartment, it's it's like he's still there. It, it's it's um it's truly an expression of who he is. So I think it's almost like um you know it's a a, a manifestation of him, the apartment. Yeah, you truly uh, get a sense. Uh, I guess the, this phrase actually comes from um, The Dark Tower by Stephen King. But in that, he talks about the world having moved on. And you really get that sense with with Blade Runner that the world has moved on. These are the remnants of, of the world that we knew. Uh, you know, anybody that could have afforded to has left. They've gone off world. And there's just those that are left. There's this, you know, disparity, class disparity, I suppose, people who are left behind, who have just sort of um, held on to whatever they can find. Uh, one of the nice things that I like in the adaptation is how they they moved from the dust, which if you're shooting in a pre-CGI Hollywood, dealing with dust is going to be really difficult <laughs> for everybody. You're going to be killing people if you're creating this really dusty environment, but instead they went for rain instead of dust. And I thought that was great, especially, you know, this is LA, this is supposed to be, you know, it never rains in Southern California, but um, now we have a world in LA where it, it always rains. <laughs> it's just constant. A constant in the in the environment. Yeah, one thing I wanted to ask about is because I found it interest. Like I love this set for his apartment, but then I was wondering, okay, here's some Blade Runner guy. He's a basically a detective, a cop. He has to do the dirty work, yet he has a piano in his place. So like how many people actually have a piano in their own place, but also it's very significant because of later on when Rachel plays the piano and then she doesn't even know if that's something that she actually learned or was some embedded memory. And she just didn't even know she could play it. So she just started playing it. So it's a key scene, but it was just, I just found it a bit odd for him to have a piano in, in his place. 
I don't find it odd. I think it, I think it speaks very clearly to um, the, the terror he must feel of not knowing if he's human or a replicant himself. Now, for a record, I mean, it would, we're going to get into this eventually. For the record, I, I truly believe that Deckard is a replicant. And um, he, uh, the piano would probably be there um, as him trying to acquire the, the, um, the stuff of humans in kind of a panic, really. Hum- humans love music. I'm going to get I'm going to get a piano. I'm going to put all these pictures on the piano, but we don't know his relationship to the piano. And we don't know the relationship to the pictures. They, they almost seem to be um, his way of safeguarding um, his position um, and his humanity. It's very much like hoarders. I think hoarders right. do that as well is they, they acquire all of these things that, 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 um, helps them to feel grounded. And I think it's very interesting that he would have a piano that he doesn't know how to play. Hmm. And of course, um, you know, Rachel playing it, Rachel is such an, is such a brilliant character. Um, she has no qualms about saying, I don't know if I'm playing this because this is something I actually learned within my lifespan. Or if this is something, this is from Tyrell's niece. You know, this is a, this is a memory. She's very vulnerable in that, um, in that moment. And she admits, mm-hmm. I don't think it's something Deckard would ever admit. I don't think he would, he would flat out say, well, I don't know how to play it. Yeah, but the thing is, I, I mean, I, I appreciate what you're saying, and it's kind of cool because we're all, you know, people believe that whether he's maybe some people probably either don't care or it's not a big deal with them. Some people think that he is a replicant. Some people don't. I, w- I was always of the belief that he wasn't. But one thing that is a huge part of why he probably is is all those photos. Like, like you would think that if he actually had real photos and they weren't something that was made up or just pretend family just like Rachel is that these didn't look like they were connected to him in any way. There were no pictures of himself. There were no pictures of him with people. There was no, not nothing there. It just looked like these were set there to build what is his replicant life. Um, and now, and I thought this is the perfect time because we can obviously get into this later, but are there something like, we should talk about that issue, whether Deckard is a replicant or not, or is there anything, we must get into that now, um, cause we do have about maybe 10, 15 minutes left is, and that's a key question. So what are some of the things that you would say are for the plus side that he is a replicant? I think, well, I mean, the unicorn, <laughs> the dream of the unicorn and how, how could, how could Geth possibly know that, you know, he was thinking of a unicorn. Um, there's no way he would know unless that had been planted and, you know, where it comes from is sort of unknown. Um, the inappropriateness of his, um, or the uncanniness, I don't want to say inappropriate, the, the uncanniness of his um, altercation with Leo, where Leo is, is, you know, if he's, if you watch Harrison Ford's performance, you know, Leo smacks the gun out of his head and it's this very, it's this very uh, uncanny sort of look that, that Harrison Ford gives It's very jerky movements and things like that. And I think um, that sort of speaks to it. Um, 
I also think that the, now this might be controversial. I don't know how many people agree with me with this, but the rape scene is very much detailing um, that Harrison Ford is a replicant. His, his, um, his very uh, desperate play to get um, some sort of affection from Rachel. Um, I think he's trying to test himself to test whether he's a replicant or whether he's human. Um, It is again, the same sort of uncanniness. He's not reading the room. He's sort of in a, in that, in that last, you know, retiring years last sort of um, where things start to break down. Was that Troy who said that things start to break down toward the end? Yeah. I think um, that's starting to come out that there's that desperation that's starting to come out. Um, um, I think that very much is uh, an indication that this is not, this is not someone or this is someone who's been who's who's been programmed to right. you know to behave a certain to behave a certain way and is being when they're confronted with with things that they want that they need or that they feel that they that they need um they have a sort of unnatural reaction to it so i think that's i don't think there's any question this guy's a replicant <laughs> yeah. And I mean, uh, Ridley Scott has said definitively that he is, <laughs> but, but they, play, they, but they do play it so well. And, and I'm really glad you mentioned the rape scene because that was, you know, having watched it a few times this week, each time I watched that scene, I tried to weigh, well, what's going on here? Is it that he's human and now he's literally going to treat her as an object or is it, him not wanting to recognize his own replicant identity and, and trying to, you know, create that division in his mind. But yeah, I, I think pretty, if, especially if you watch any version other than the first version or the happy ending version, um, you, you kind of have to think he is, and it's not spelled out for you, which is the great thing about the film. It does leave that uh, ambiguity for you. Yeah, there's that. There's the um, the motif that they use over and over, where replicants have that sort of red glare in the back of their eyes. Um, you do very briefly see it in um, Deckard's eyes in his apartment. He's standing behind Rachel. He's kind of out of focus. It's after she's saved his life, and he sort of turns to her, and there's that very slight. Could it be? Couldn't be. Um, flash in the back of his eye which is sort of the red flash and i, I think that it, it is again it's played so subtly and so well really. so should we should we think that gaff is also a replicant now that's a good question i love i have um <laughs> i i do i do want to I'll, I'll get into that but i do want to say that it reminds me of the funniest joke anyone mm. I know has ever made about Blade Runner. I was at a, a convention, a panel. Uh, the panel was, we destroy everything you love. And it was a bunch of uh, panelists and you would have to yell out a, a franchise or something that you would love. And they would basically take the piss for 10 minutes about, <laughs> about this particular <laughs> franchise. 
And they said, all right, well, you know, that's, that's, that's the panel. That's what we're doing. Um, who wants to go first? Um, and I yelled out Blade Runner. And my, my buddy, Adam Shafto, who's amazing, said, yeah, Blade Runner. Imagine a future where Edward James almost is the only Latino in Los Angeles. <laughs> peed myself. I thought that was the funniest thing ever. That's <laughs> awesome. I, I believe that Gaff is a replicant as well. Um, I think he, he knows the score. And I think his thing, because he doesn't retire other replicants, he's not um, an off-world slave. Um, I think his sort of personal quest is to let everybody let everybody in on it who isn't already in on it. And I think that's why he's trying to get Deckard to um to realize who he is. He's a match, he's a matchstick man, very much, you know, Prometheus stealing fire um to create man. Um so he makes a little man out of a matchstick. Um, you know, he makes a chicken, you know, that you know you're you're kind of, you know, you're too afraid. You're too afraid to see what you are kind of thing. And then finally the unicorn totally. And only a replicant would dress that fabulous. Right. You know, now here's, here's, here's something that occurred to me for the first time and probably the 30 times that I've seen the film. Um, and it was when I broke down the, uh, the scroll at the beginning. Um, and they say the Nexus six replicants were superior in strength and agility and at least equal in intelligence not to their human creators, but to the genetic engineers who created them. And I wondered for the first time, well, maybe they weren't made by humans. Maybe this is just the previous model of Nexus or whatever that made them. Maybe everybody in this world is now, uh, you know, a, a replicant. That's possible. Yeah. And only certain replicants have the four year lifespan and everybody else sort of gets, gets to keep their own, or, you know, age naturally, I guess, as natural as you can age if you're a replicant. I suppose we would be very remiss if we didn't touch on uh, the majestic score to this film that is at least as iconic as its visuals. Um, so, uh, yeah, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, the music of Vangelis, um, who also did Chariots of Fire in, in creating the music Um to and really partly the soul to Blade Runner. I think it's yeah, it's probably one of the best scores I've ever heard. Um, truly beautiful, very dreamy, very so ahead of its time like that's 1982 and it's so you know you know the moog synthesizers and you know the electronica but but um also um sounding organic as well it 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 really is a great um a great audio um cue to you know what replicants are which is they're you know they're synthetic however they're they're you know very much um, all the trappings of an organic um, creature, right? So it's, it's, um, I think it's beautiful. And it's one of those scores where, you know, you can have the smallest snippet of it and you immediately know what film it's from. 
you know, and you can't say that with a lot of films, especially like I think of some of the modern like Hans Zimmer ones, they, they feel sort of interchangeable, um, but, but not uh, definitely not Blade Runner. Sorry, David, did you have something there? Yeah. Yeah. They did have um, uh, certainly around that time. Um, I think Queen uh, did the soundtrack um, of um, a Flash Gordon, Flash Gordon, yeah. and that was sort of really tied in with that film. Um, so I, you know, you sort of listen to these kinds of things, and you've got you know the same thing with when we were talking about the um, music from Planet of the Apes, and how you could almost recognize something, some little bit that Alexander Courage brought in, or uh, some of the other music that is brought into later like some of the music in planet of the apes also ties in with it because it's the same composer uh, of the movie alien that you get a sense that it somehow has a similar kind of a theme so with vangel van Nagelis, that certainly uh fit in um wonderfully i was wondering if we can just get into you know, like the difference between the various versions, because some people feel that there, I mean, there is of course the 82 version, then there's a director's cut, there's a final cut. And from a lot of, a lot of people say that there's the, the version that's called the final cut is the best version. So uh, I don't know if Charlene, if you can just go over just some of the, maybe not itemize each significant change, but maybe a few of the things that make one version different than the other. And what do you consider the, the best version? So um, there is a happy ending version where um, Decker drives off in the car with Rachel at the end and they have um, footage that was actually shot for The Shining. It's uh, left over from The Shining. Uh, Stanley Kubrick uh, lent uh, Ridley Scott some of the um, the aerial footage that he shot for The Shining, 17 hours worth of aerial footage that he shot for The Shining. So they put sort of that at the end. Um, there's that. There's a, There's also a, a version with the voiceover. I believe that's the happy ending version as well, or um, where you've got this absolutely horrific performance by Harrison Ford, basically spoon feeding you everything um, with his voiceover. Um, You've got the director's cut, which I believe um, is the, uh, it doesn't have a voiceover and um, it's still the original footage. Um, it ends with uh, Deckard and Rachel uh, leaving in an elevator. So you don't know where they go. You don't know what happens to them. Um, another thing too about that voiceover that the happy ending is that uh, Deckard somehow miraculously discovers that Rachel doesn't have an expiration date, um, which I think is just, I mean, dude, seriously, no. Um, the final cut um, has some, it has some imaging um, touched up, particularly the scene where Zora is running through the plate glass windows. Um, the, in the director's cut, because it's the original footage, it's, it's the, the actress was, or the stunt double, whoever was doing it, is wearing a terrible wig. And I mean, it's like, it's a rug. It's the worst <laughs> wig I've ever seen. Um, the final cut that they actually reshot the scene um, with, the, I believe the same actress doing the stunt herself. And Joanna Cassidy. That's right. Yeah. 
and a way better wig. Oh my God. It, it looks better. Now that the, the, the interesting thing too is now I'm not sure if this is in the director's cut or the final cut. There is a scene where Roy Batty finally meets up with Tyrell and he says, I want more life. And then it's up to up for debate, whether he says father or fucker. Oh. And apparently he was, when he gave the performance, some, some versions you hear the word father more, some versions you hear the other word more. Apparently the performance was given where it was intentionally difficult to know what he was saying in that mm-hmm. particular line. That's the, that's the urban myth that I've, that I've, uh, I've heard. Mm-hmm. I've always thought of it as father. And I believe mm-hmm. he says father um, mm-hmm. quite clearly. So well, for me, it's it's kind of neat that you mentioned that because that's because I just watched it this uh, 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 last night, just in prep for the you know the whatever x number of times I've seen the film, so mm-hmm. I just watched it again. And when I heard it, I heard the f word, the f f asterisk c k e r or fracker. Like I heard that him actually say that like it sounded like wow that's really rude because i when i first saw the film i was sure it was father but when i heard it this time unless my hearing is going which is possible but it really sounded like i want more life effort right like like that strong strong cuss word and i was really shocked by that because this guy is really angry at that point as opposed to him referring to his father and that whole scene with Tyrell was just so brilliant because Tyrell it's, it almost seems like the way he was speaking to him this guy's got a high EQ not just a high IQ but the way he's talking to him the way he says you've done great things too and just all of this stuff he said sounded like I'm trying to get out of this situation with this killer robot replicant next to me and I'm just going to play it up and just try to do it in such a way that this guy isn't going to kill me. So all of the things that Tyrell says are so brilliant, so wonderful, but does it work for him? Well, sorry, spoiler alert, apologies. Uh, One thing I wanted to ask you about, well, there's a couple of things. One, I'm glad you were mentioning about Zora and those plate glass. And and I was thinking of watching it even one more time this morning and count the number of plate glass windows she goes through. Because she goes through one, and I'm thinking, okay, she's had to go through one. She's being chased by a Blade Runner. She's a replicant. He's trying to kill her. She's trying to get the hell out of there. And the only way to get out is to go through a plate glass one. So she goes through a plate glass. That's amazing, exciting, and wonderful. Then there's another one. And she goes through that because she's being chased by a replicant and he's trying to kill her. Then there's another one. And, he, and she goes through that. Then there's another one. And I was thinking there should be some version of this, just like in Robot Chicken, where they have those stormtroopers trying to sell fire protection, fire insurance to, um, to Uncle Owen and Aunt Beru. And I thought that is hilarious. So I was thinking that they had, could have had a robot chicken version of this where she's finally gone through six plate glass things, somehow survives and gets away. And she's trying to hunt down the <laughs> designer or architect of the building to hunt him down or her down and kill that person for putting all these plate glass windows. The other thing I was thinking of is she's gone through like five or six of these. She's finally said, I've had enough of this. I'm going to slow down and just let the let the Blade Runner kill me because I can't go through another plate glass window. Uh, the other thing that I had was the chess scene because I love chess. 
Um, there's also Queen's Gambit recently, and there's was three dimensional chess in Star Trek, and, and chess I just love it, and I played it in high school, and blah blah blah. So there's an important chess scene. This is basically Roy Batty's in. He was able to get uh, um, J.F. Sebastian to actually, who's already playing a chess game. And Roy Batty says, you know what? Why don't you do this move? So the whole thing is they find out that not only is J.F. Sebastian and Tyrell so brilliant and so amazing. Sebastian's only beaten Tyrell once. And they're both brilliant people. They're amazing at chess. So Roy Batty says, well, you know what? Our in is I'm going to make these moves. So he says, okay, move your queen up here right next to his king and put him in check. And, and obviously Sebastian thinks, what is, what, am I, what is going on here? He can take your queen. He doesn't say that, but you get a sense, this is a crazy move. Why are you doing this? So he does it anyways. And then um, Tyrell notices that and says, He's wondering what's going on, and then he just does the obvious move. He takes, he moves his knight and takes the queen. And then Sebastian through Roy Batty, Roy Batty says, "Well, now do this: move your bishop here, and you've checkmated him." That's two moves. Any chess player would see more than two moves ahead. But I think Charlene, when we talked earlier about this, you had a sort of a response, something I wasn't even aware of that could explain why someone doesn't see this. And I was wondering if you can share that with the audience. So I think that um, Batty has, as part of his um, uh, programming, um, chess moves that come from Tyrell. And I think that the, um, the way he's playing the game is sort of a code to, um, to Tyrell. Um, I think Tyrell would recognize those particular moves. Um, he might recognize them because he had um, programmed into Batty himself. I actually, I don't think it's answered, but um, I believe that um, Batty is kind of Tyrell's crowning achievement. I think he's, um, he's so much superior in, in intellect and in emotion Um than the other replicants of the, of, of that level of nexus. Um, I think they come, those, those chess moves come from Tyrell. And I think he realizes whether he knows that it's Batty specifically or not at the door um, is still kind of up for debate, but, but definitely if, if those moves are coming, then he must recognize them as his own. Um, and so he decides, oh, I better let whoever is there in. And that's how, ty- uh, that's how bad it gets in. I like that. I like that rather than just, it doesn't make sense, which lies in the face of everything else in the film. Yeah. Okay. Now, we- someone in the back of the audience has held up the 10 minute sign. So we've only got about 10 minutes left. And uh, Troy, I think you might have uh, uh, something that we might want to do as a, as a fun thing in this last 10 minutes. Yeah, I was thinking uh, that we might introduce uh, a new segment that we could uh, try out for initially here, but but hopefully in future episodes as well. Um, something called dreamcasting, where we would go through um, a few key roles and and we would cast people from uh, sort of a classic all time era actors living or dead, as well as current actors um, who could. Uh, play these roles now just before uh, 
we go around and do this, I just wanted to quickly um, read for folks the actual Blade Runner cast. Harrison Ford played Rick Deckard. Rutger Hauer was Roy Batty. Sean Young was Rachel. Edward James Olmos was Gaff. M. Emmett How sorry, M. Emmett Walsh uh, played Bryant. Daryl Hannah was Pris. William Sanderson played J.F. Sebastian. Brian James was Leon Kowalski. Joe Turkell was Eldon Terrell, and Joanna Cassidy was Zora. So let's uh, let's take a roll, starting with Deckard. And we can go around the horn. So I'll give you in my classic all-time casting, dream casting, as it, as it were. Deckard, I was sort of torn between two actors. I think I'm going to go with Humphrey Bogart. Um, but as a close second, I had Clive Owen, who is still with us. But I think he would have done a great job, say, 20 years ago. And Clive Owen always looks good in an overcoat. So um, I would go with either of those as as Deckard. Uh, how about you, Charlene? I was going to say Humphrey Bogart. Yeah, that's fine. Absolutely. Humphrey Bogart. Just, just um, his, uh, you know, his legacy in the noir genre, um, you know, Maltese Falcon. I just think that that would have been really amazing to see. And what do you have, David? Who do you have for uh, Deckard? Um, but uh, I had Humphrey Bogart also. Uh, but I also had Roy Scheider, and of course Roy Scheider oh, nice. many ages, but him from the French Connection era. I love that. Nice. Yeah. I could yeah. be I could be sold on that for sure. All right, so that would bring us to Rachel, and uh, I had to stop thinking about it because the more I thought about it, the more uh, I, yeah, I had too many too many options. Um, so. My my final three for Rachel in the all-time category, I had Louise Brooks, Natalie Wood, and Greta Garbo. And I think I'm going to go with Greta. I'm going to go with Greta Garbo. I, I you know, was watching the film again last night, and I thought, man, Garbo would make a great Rachel. I would say Catherine Ross. Oh, also good. Catherine Ross, just because of the, um, the incredible performance in The Stepford Wives, also, she's she's just incredible to look at. She, you know, great eyes. Young, oh yeah, it's just beautiful. I was busy typing away. So, what were the three again for uh, Troy? It was Louise Brooks, Natalie Wood, wrong. Natalie, Natalie Wood, Wood, yeah, and Garbo. But I really should have to pick one. So I I would go with Garbo in the end. Who I had for Rachel for at least the all time was Olivia de Havilland. Because um, I loved oh, her perfect. in the 1938 film, The Adventures of um, Robin Hood, and Ingrid Bergman, is, oh, who are my two Rachels. Excellent. Bergman Bogart. That would be great. And, and of course, he's named Rick, mm. right? The character's first name is Rick. So there you go. Yeah, Rick's Cafe American. Yes. I like he that He can't a lot. return to the U.S. because we think we, he killed a man. But anyways, so <laughs> um, Troy, what do you got for Roy Batty for all-time actors living or dead? I have, I was pretty definitive on this one, uh, a young Kenneth Branagh, like Henry V era. I picked um, a young Orson Welles. Oh, yes. That would have been great. <laughs> yeah. Just, uh, you know, as long as he's not, uh, you know, drunk on French champagne. Right. Like not touch of evil, but more, more uh, Citizen Kane. Well, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. 
And what I do you love these there, choices. And Henry V, Henry V is, is one of my favorite <laughs> films yeah. of all time. And Kenneth Branagh's performance in it is one of my favorites of all time. So for me, I pick two people that sort of the look of them. Like oh, when you have yeah. Roy, ba- Roy Abadi, when you're talking about just his look, because you got Rutger Hauer in that. I was thinking Robert Shaw back in the 60s looked almost exactly like Roy yes. Roy Batty. Rod Steiger also in in his role uh, in in the heat of the night I think would have been good as well. Nice. Um, but those are my choices for all time. Oh, I'm liking all of these. Okay, so Pris is our last in the uh, classic all-time dream casting category. Um, and I went with a young Jane Fonda, like Cat Ballou to Clute era. That's so funny because the, um, the wig, Jane Fonda, <laughs> speaking of... Um, uh, Clute? Oh God, her name is escaping me. Oh. <laughs> we, it, well, Barbarella. Oh, Daryl Hannah. Daryl Hannah, um, yeah. that sort of Jane Fonda wig on. That's right. Her. That's right. Wow. That's, that's, uh, yeah, I can see where you get that from. I pick Audrey Hepburn for two reasons. Uh, one, I think she's, you know, uh, she had that beautiful gamine look to her that mm-hmm. I, uh, would sort of betray the character of, of Pris, but also wouldn't you love to see Audrey Hepburn kick somebody's ass? Like I would yeah. really love to see her tackle Humphrey Bogart with her leg. <laughs> I think that would be amazing. <laughs> that would be good. Yeah. And doing backflips. Oh, totally. She was a ballet dancer too, right? So she could yeah. do it. Awesome. All right, David, we need you there for, for press for all time. Well, I also, I also went the same way as Charlene as, and you, you both, I think I had Jane Fonda as one of my three. And I also was thinking dancer and someone that could do this kind of thing. So what I have for press, and I don't know if I removed, I did oh. yeah, Jane Fonda or Leslie Caron. Nice. Um, as, as my choices for press. Very good. Like that very much. Okay. I guess we're ready to move on to our, uh, current uh, actors and actresses in dream casting for the roles of Deckard, Rachel, Roy Batty, and Pris. And I will start with, uh, in the role of Deckard, I went with Idris Elba. Ooh, nice. He's got a great um, vulnerability. Right, as well. Yeah, as well as the toughness. Yeah. yeah. We're great. Um, I picked Paul Bettany. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, partially because of his um, involvement with, with the Marvel. <laughs> He's sort of not human kind of uh, in the uh, Marvel movies. Um, and also I think he, he's, he's uh, got a great ability to be um, very menacing at like the drop of a hat. I think he can. Yes. Ability. So. I picked him. Nice. David, who do you have for Deckard? I had, I had Russell Crowe or Hugh Jackman. Um, nice. Some people that say that Hugh, Hugh Jackman is the poor man's Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> I have heard that said. I don't agree. I've heard that said. Well, that might be the sixth stage of an actor's life. 
So it's the poor man's version of it. I, I think you probably have all heard of the five stages of it, which I can't always remember exactly the right order yeah. of it, but it's always a great little bit. Um, so go ahead, uh, Troy. Uh, I just want to say Jackman sounds great. I, I think that would be a, a good call. Rachel, I went with uh, Jennifer Lawrence. I have Tilda Swinton. Nice. Yeah, just the. Um, the I really should stop saying nice because it's all I'm saying in, in response. That's, there's a lot <laughs> I should, of niceness. I should we're, edit we're that nice in. people. Yeah. <laughs> all righty, Troy. Troy. Uh, Troy. That is nice, though. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but anyways, uh, so what I have, I have, I think I have a different Jennifer. Uh huh. Jennifer oh, Jennifer Connelly. Connelly. I l- always like Jennifer Connelly. Yeah. 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 The key is Roy Batty, though. Yes. You got to get yeah. the right Roy Batty, current I, actor. Roy I know. Batty. And, and you know, it's you just cannot erase Rutger Hauer from the mind. So it's really tough. Um, I was thinking of potentially about a couple of Skarsgårds, but in the end, uh, I think it was the hair. <laughs> I, I went with uh, uh, Tom Felton, who played Malfoy. Uh, he he still has that sort of odd menacing look about him. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if he's beefy enough uh, to to have that physical menace that uh, Rucker Hauer had, but uh, I'm sticking with it. That's Tom Felton for uh, Roy Batty. I picked Crispin Glover. Oh, I think Crispin Glover is an incredible actor, um, and I I would I would love to watch him walk the line between menacing and vulnerable. He's always, he, he never plays what's on the page. And I, I really respect him for that. So I'd love to see that in a character who is, you know, not human, but more human. Than he yeah. Is. I've got to say one of my favorite Crispin mm-hmm. Glover roles is his really tiny bit as Jingle Dale in Wild at Heart. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if you remember that or not, but it just, to me, as much as I love Wild at Heart and Lynch, it, 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 all I could think when I left the film was that little thing of uh, Jingle Dale, his <laughs> performance, waiting for Santa and making the sandwiches at night. Anyway, Crispin Glover is is a genius. Yeah, David, we need you for for Roy, don't we, Roy Batty? Yeah, I've I've got uh, Javier uh, Bardem. Oh, Bardem. Um because yeah. he's played some pretty sick. Um, role. like, like this person has to be a bit on that sick edge and someone that can be menacing. And there've been a lot of great, um, films recently where you've got, um, you know, some actors that play that kind of role. And certainly he's one of the, I, I think he may have been the main bad guy in no country for old men. Was, yeah. Um, and that was quite, the quite the role so i pictured him as sort of like that character as roy batty because if if you ran into him in the street you would probably start running very quickly in the other direction let's just put it that way and now i like your your bardem as batty against my idris elba as deckard i think that that would be a, a really nice casting move okay we're down to our last call it's pris and uh, this um, person immediately jumped to mind for me, and that was uh, Anya Taylor-Joy, that 
most of us would probably know from the Queen's Gambit. Um, just, you know, she's got this stunning face. Uh, and I just imagined her with the black makeup across her eyes. And uh, I think she would be stunning. I really like Anya Taylor-Joy. I like that she's got a bit of an edge to her um, when you see her performance. Um, I had Scarlett Johansson. And I think that's um, just because she, uh, even though she's kind of played that role before, name of the movie escapes me, but she's, you know, basically a android that, or an alien that hunts down, you know, dudes. Oh yeah. Okay. Uh, skin, the skin movie, uh, David. In my uh, skin, the skin I'm in, something like that. I can't yeah. remember. Um, but skin job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> lay, lay me some skin. No. <laughs> <laughs> the sequel Blade Runner uh, deserved rather than 2049, which we won't go into now. But, um, but yeah, I, I, I actually think she um, has more depth as an actor than she's given credit for. So I'd like to see that. I think you're right. And you know what? Um, she has a wonderful voice. I find she has such a sensual jo- a Incredible voice. Incredible voice. And so does, um, um, oh my gosh, I've just forgotten her name. Um, the, our original press, uh, Daryl Hannah. Daryl Hannah. Um, yeah. So I, I think that's a good call as well. David, what do you have? Who do you have for us for press? Well, you can almost go with Michelle Williams. You can even go with Michelle Williams mm. at this point. But what I picked okay. was Margot Robbie as press. Okay, Margot Robbie. Well, she, and she could certainly handle the physicality. We know that. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I just watched now, I, I remember. Again. Oh, she's very good. Um, the one thing I did was I sort of cheated a bit because I mentioned earlier that I cheated. So cheated. what I did was I was thinking of taking taking the best two films of all time and just saying, take grabbing that cast and just putting them into Blade Runner. So I took the best two movies of all time. Most people think that's Casablanca and uh, the Orson Welles classic Citizen Kane. Well, actually, those aren't the best two films of all time. The best two films of all time are Working Girl and Roadhouse. Um, so Working Girl is the Working Girl is the second greatest film of ever, and Roadhouse is the greatest film ever. So for Deckard from Roadhouse, Patrick Swayze, yes. Kelly Lynch as Rachel, Marshall Arteague as Roy Batty, and Julie Michaels as Press. And when Whoa. it comes to Working Girl, Harrison Ford is almost made to play Deckard at this point. So I would put Harrison Ford at, from Working Girl as Deckard. And then I would nice. have Yeah. And then I would have Sigourney Weaver as Rachel, Alec Baldwin as Roy Batty and Melanie Griffith as Pris. So I thought I would just have a bit of fun and take the cast of those films. I was also almost I didn't have time but I was thinking of taking an actual television series, a classic and maybe the best of all time might be Beverly Hillbillies and then taking the cast from <laughs> Beverly Hillbillies or the Munsters. The Munsters would be a good choice. The Munsters too. would be very good. Them <laughs> or Adam's family, whatever. But sorry, I've gone too far. I digress. But, but wait, wait, wait. No, no, go back. Um, I need to see that. So I, what if though, with Working Girl, I like, I like the Working Girl side of things, but what if we did a gender reverse? Because Sigourney Weaver, we know, could be Deckard easily. 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 Yeah. Like, that's not even, that's not a joke. But Harrison Ford is Rachel. Uh, Alec Baldwin is Pris. And Melanie Griffith as a, a very different Roy Batty. Right on. 
Right on. Uh, there we go. I like that. There we go. But the gender switches and also picking someone else from a different, like, like not just having these all as white characters and having someone in from a, a different background is great too. And that's something that's more common nowadays as they recast things like Starbuck uh, being a woman and so on. That, that, that they, what they do is they change these kinds of things up. Edward James almost is also, of course, great as Adama when they redid the, um, uh, Battlestar Galactica, but yeah, we also know time go, to be. Go ahead. I was just going to say quickly. Um, Charlene mentioned um, Scarlett Johansson. You mentioned Scarlett Johansson, and mm-hmm. again, we know Scarlett's a badass, so she could easily um, be Deckard as well. Oh, definitely, yeah, absolutely. So I think we're out of time. So. Um, Troy, I'll leave it to you to finish. And by, by the way, just thanks a lot, Charlene, for being our guest. Um, I think this episode was excellent. And um, we'll see what's left after the cutting room floor because of all of our little mistakes that, that Troy and I made. You're perfect, of course. But, um, <laughs> uh, yeah. And thank you for all your experience. But um, go ahead, Troy. Well, I have a little bit of... Uh a, a little bagatelle of uh, useless um, comments. And that is every time I've ever seen Blade Runner, once we see that opening shot of LA, it actually reminds me of two things, the beginning of the blues brothers and driving by Hamilton on the QEW at night. <laughs> that's it. And now that's all I'm ever going to see. When I watch the opening. <laughs> Classic. I love you, Hamilton. All right. So just to finish. <laughs> well, I think that, that Hamilton, the musical should actually, there should be a Hamilton, the musical based on <laughs> Hamilton, the city. And, yeah. then, and then I was thinking of that other city that was near Hamilton, which is, of course is blanking on me right now, but it's heading towards Toronto. Grimsby. Um, Grimsby. Burlington, the musical. Oh, well, Grimsby, Grimsby, the musical. Yeah. Grimsby <laughs> has the best place name in, that I can think of other than Dildo Newfoundland. Grimsby, man. How happy can you be in a place called Grimsby? <laughs> I've been to Dildo. It's a it's a wonderful, wonderful place. <laughs> and we love you, Grimsby. <laughs> yes, we love you, Grimsby. Yeah, the 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 instrumentation for the Grimsby Grimsby musical is just the sound of people banging <laughs> heads against a brick wall. <laughs> there you and go. Now we'll give you now we'll give you yeah, Charlie Challenger's website. <laughs> <laughs> So that I can get all the hate mail from, from people who live in Grimsby. Um, sad to say, um, I, I don't have a website. That oh. um, I, <laughs> it's, I should have mentioned that earlier, but I, I'm, I'm sort of in between. Um, I have a, a, a Wix site, the address of which I cannot remember. Um, it's got to be retooled. Um, if you, if you want to know more about me, you can go to my, um, my agent's website. I'm at K2 Literary and, uh, under author Charlene Challenger. If you'd like to know basically everything that we've said <laughs> in the introduction, thank you very much for that. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a little bit off, off the, uh, off the internet at the moment, but, um, I don't know, maybe when I get my wits about me again, I'll come back. I'm not sure. Hey. Are you going off world? I am. I yeah, off world. I, I'd like to see some sea beams glitter in the dark off the Tannhauser Gate. Final thoughts on Blade Runner. Um, 
If you've never seen it before, take a nap before you watch it. Because the first time, I am sad to say, it is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, the first time I watched it was at the end of a very long work day while I was uh, being spooned by my boyfriend, now husband, on his very comfortable couch. And I just fell asleep. I fell asleep. Um, and that is not to say um, that, you, that you know, the movie is boring. It's not. Um, I, I was just very tired. So have a nap. Pop some corn. Do check it out. Final cut, in my opinion. Um, it is a classic for a reason. I highly recommend it. Okay, so home again, home again. Jiggity, jiggity. <laughs> just jiggity, jig. Jiggity, jig. I don't know where that's from, so I'm just going to oh, say jiggity, jig. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> All right, folks. Thanks Troy, for listening. help me out. Help me out. <laughs> Let's get out of here. We need, we, need, we need that robot really soon. <laughs> so... Thanks for listening to Two Old Farts. I am Troy Harkin. Jiggity jig. <laughs> and I'm David Clink. <laughs> <laughs>